Uh, Mark chapter 12, as we get ready to get into this, we're going to start in the end of 11. Let me tell you why. If, if you're new to studying scripture, um, you're wondering how the Bible fits together, great, this is good, because I'm going to show in context how all of Mark 12 shapes itself, and it starts in Mark 11. And you should know, when you study the Bible, uh, your chapter divisions and verse references are not inspired of God. We, we believe the text of scripture is inspired of God. We're going to talk about the inspiration of scripture when we get to Mark 16, like how do you know you can trust the Bible? Uh, but... The, your, your chapter divisions and verse divisions are not inspired of God. Some people came later and they're like, you know what? When we gather together, it might be good to like put a chapter division in there so people know where we're going to talk. And so in the 12th century, they added chapter divisions. In the 16th century, uh, they added a verse division. So that kind of gave it a reference. So when I say to you this morning, turn to Mark chapter 12, you know exactly where to go. Street address, you're right there. Uh, you can look at it. Here's the crazy thing. In the 16th century, when they started giving uh, verse addresses to where passages of scripture came, that was when weird religious groups started popping out of Christianity. And the reason is, is because they could just take a verse and cherry pick and make it mean whatever they wanted to. I know there's a, there's a group in Canada that, that believes that the Bible told them that they need to run around naked and set things on fire because they found a verse in the Bible that says that. And another verse that, you know, one says naked, the other one says fire. And they put them together and they're like, this is godly. And so that's what they do. It's like, uh, context, please context. Right? So, so we're turning to a verse reference and we're going to look at it in context. And it goes from, uh, end of chapter 11, all the way to end of chapter 12. Jesus is accomplishing something specific here through four questions. Jesus is going to answer four questions. And if you remember, if you follow the trajectory of where this has gone, chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and the disciples know what's waiting him. In fact, it says he's walking with boldness. He's not even looking back. And the disciples are like, you go ahead, Jesus. We'll see how it plays out for you. We'll just follow from a safe distance. And then in chapter 11, Jesus rides on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. And that is very symbolic of the identity of who Christ is. Because in the Old Testament, if you read about the people riding on donkeys, it's those in authority, those that hold kingship positions. You'll see them riding on the donkey, especially in the times of peace before Solomon was anointed to be king. King David had him journey through Jerusalem on the back of a donkey coming to his anointing. It was a picture of ultimately of Jesus who would be of the lineage of David who would come as king declaring himself. But when Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, he doesn't stop in the streets. He journeys to the temple to offer himself as the Passover lamb the ultimate lamb that would give his life. And so Jesus journeys into Jerusalem with this boldness. He offers himself as the king coming to give his life uh, for the sheep. And he, he himself is the ultimate lamb becoming the sacrifice for sin. And in doing that, Jesus lays down the gauntlet to the people around. He's like, deal with it. Your decision over who Christ is, is significant. I heard someone shared this with me yesterday. It was hilarious. But um, when you think about the significance of what's taking place here with Jesus, you know, last night we had a fight uh, that took place. And I guess apparently to get a fight, I, I didn't look this up. This was just told to me. To get a ticket to the fight, it was like 3000 bucks, and, and, and that's expensive. But apparently somebody said that um, they, they didn't want to pay uh, to go there, that the only reason they'd ever pay something like that is is because uh, Jesus is battling Satan. That's the only fight they would ever uh, go to see and pay that much money for. And not even just that fight itself, it would have to be battling over their soul, right? And, and what Jesus is doing in this text is that battle, okay? So the significance of what that is, by the way, thank you, Eric, for that story. But what, what Jesus is doing here in the story is, is, is that battle that's taking place for your soul. 
And so the significance of this passage and understanding what's taking place is important to our lives. And Jesus in this is wanting us to develop our conviction and and standing in him. So he's presenting himself, king, lamb, deal with it. And the religious leaders did. At the convenience of their self and the rejection of Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, this is what it said. The chief priests and the scribes began seeking how to destroy him. And we need to get him quiet. Wipe him off this earth. For they were afraid of him. And so what happens from this point forward at the end of chapter 11 is all of the religious leaders, the prominent people in society, you know, the big wigs, intimidating ones, they come to Christ and they pull out, they pull them all together. I mean, some of these groups don't even get along and they're coming together just to bring Jesus down. And they ask Jesus four questions. And, and the reason they ask four questions is because it's following rabbinical law. If someone were to be approved by a rabbi, they had to answer four questions according to rabbinical law to demonstrate their authority to be able to declare the truth that they stand on. They had to ask a legal question and have a a valid answer. They had to be asked a vulgar question, ridiculing their belief. They had to be asked a a question of principle and conduct and a question based on interpretation of a narrative passage in Scripture. And so these religious leaders come together to really discredit Jesus. They want to destroy him, and they ask him four questions to validate his authority as a teacher in Israel. But not only that, you remember when Jesus journeyed into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, he presents himself as a lamb. At the same time, Israel would be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover when the people would go to the temple to present their own lamb on behalf of their family for sacrifice. And when they would take the lamb to the temple, the lamb had to be vetted. It had to be examined to make sure it was without spot or blemish. And for several days, the priests would watch over these lambs to make sure that they were able to be sacrificed because they were pure. And so Jesus is demonstrating himself as the lamb, now placing himself under examination of the religious leaders to determine his worthiness to be sacrificed as the lamb without spot or blemish for your sin. This is important. And the religious leaders fought hard to embrace anything but the truth that was right in front of them. And Jesus, in their questions, knew what they were doing. So he countered their questions with other questions to expose their hypocrisy and point to where they lacked in their understanding and need of Jesus. And what you see unfolding in these questions really is the genius of who Christ is. God in the flesh coming for your sins, being declared throughout all of Scripture. And the first question comes up in Mark chapter 11 and verse 28. And when Jesus is asked these questions, he's asked these questions by specific religious leaders and understanding these specific leaders helps to better understand the the question that Jesus is asking. And so in Mark 11, verse 28, it says this, they asked Jesus the question, the priests are asking Jesus this question, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do these things? Some, some, uh, Scriptures may point out that it's the Herodians, but the Herodians have the priestly duty at this point in Israel's history. And so they're the ones that are over the law. And you'll see that one scribes and those over the law are also there asking these questions with Jesus. But they're asking, what authority are you doing these things, Christ? I mean, we're the ones in charge. We're the authority. We're the ones that declare these things. We're the priests. You're not a priest. So why do you have the authority to do the things that you're doing? 
We already know their motivation. They really don't care about the answer. Their attempt really is to discredit Jesus because all they're after, according to verse 18 of the same chapter, is to destroy him. And knowing that their intentions aren't pure, Jesus asks a second question back to them. He says, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. You know, when you see Jesus in scripture, we're going we're gonna to look at this in a few weeks, but I would encourage you to, to maybe even do a word study if, this week if you'd like to. I'll tell you, look up the word shadow in the New Testament. If you look up the word shadow in the New Testament, it, it often refers to the certain things, practices of the Old Testament as merely just a shadow of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill in himself. Jesus, Jesus is the Sabbath. He is the place of rest. It's not Sunday. It's Jesus. Jesus is the temple. It's not a building. It's Jesus. Jesus is the law. It's not the law itself. It's Jesus. All of those things are simply shadows to point ultimately to Jesus. And when they're asking the authority, we already know hindsight what the answer to the question is. Everything finds us fulfillment in Jesus. But Jesus takes a step back and he asks this question. By what authority did John teach? He sort of puts the focus off of himself for a minute and he goes back to John because one, he knows what the religious leaders are thinking about John according to the crowds around them. But two, if you remember when John, John started pronouncing the arrival of Jesus, it was Jesus that went to John and was baptized under the authority of John, recognizing who John was. And so if they know who John's authority is, then they're going to know who Jesus' authority is. Because when John baptized Jesus, it tells us the Father descended, or the Father spoke and the dove descended. The triunity of God was present, declaring the authority of who Christ was. And the Father said, listen to him. And so it doesn't matter what you think about your religious law. The ultimate authority rests in Christ because the Father said, listen to him. When Jesus spoke, Jesus even told the people, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. He's teaching under the rabbinical law according to the law of the Old Testament in which they would follow. But then Jesus says, I say to you, I say to you. And what Jesus is demonstrating is himself as the ultimate authority over everything. And so when he's asked this question, Jesus takes a step back and just says, oh, just tell me what you think about John. response of the religious leaders. It tells us they didn't answer the question because they were afraid of the people. They didn't want to answer Jesus's question because they were more interested in what people thought of them than they were in the truth in which they should stand for. Uh, They're showing their ultimate motivation. It's themselves. Their, their interest is in their self and their interest is in their safety. And sometimes when you stand for truth, it'll lead you to a place of inconvenience for yourself. And that's what Jesus continued to say to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, Jesus, in standing for the truth, it definitely wasn't convenient to himself. He gave up his life. And so there is something in life that should transcend the preservation of who you are. And that's the identity of truth because it shapes the very person that you are. And it's not until an individual has identified their conviction in the depth of truth that they're going to stand beyond something that doesn't provide the safety that they feel so important their self. And so when asking this question, they say, Jesus, we can't answer the question. And it tells us why. It's because, well, all the people love John the Baptist. And the minute we make an answer, it's going to divide the crowd. And what I'm interested in is me. 
popularity. I want to play it safe. I want to play it safe because I'm more interested in what people think about me than what's actually true. And because I'm more interested in what people think about me than what's actually true, what I'm ultimately telling you is I'm more interested in me. And Jesus is identifying for them the thing that's keeping them from embracing the truth of who Christ is because the truth could cost them. But conviction is important. And identified in that conviction becomes important. Parents, can I tell you how, in, in your own household, how, how significant it is in, to stand for conviction? I mean, you ask the question, if these prominent religious leaders, if people in your community that are astute, considered powerful, the bigwigs, come to you and they ask you these questions about your faith, I mean, what's your answer? How would you stand? Oh, you know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And that's not truth. That's relativism. You know, that's your opinion. That's fine. People have opinions. But man, we need to ultimately, at some point, gravitate towards truth. I I, I know there's this concern in our heart, like, you know, if I stand for truth, I might be rejecting them. But you know, everything in life isn't valid. People have opinions, and that's okay. But but everything, it can't be true because they contradict each other at some point. And, And to be honest, if you really love people, if what you believe really matters... One of the most loving things you could do is stand for it. Now, as a church, we, we say this to each other. How, how you act is important. We, we say, love the hell out of people. That's what Jesus did. He met people where they were, and he loved them. But he didn't love them at the, at the sake of truth. He stood for truth because he loved them. And shaping ourselves in that becomes important, especially you as a parent. In your home, you might have a, have a child that... They're, they're, they trust in you, right? And as you walk life with them, you can help them develop convictions. You know, one of the cool things about young people is they are very passionate. But man, when you see that passion going towards the wrong thing, it can be destructive. We learn in our men's retreat, guys, God made you strong. But you can use that strength for things in this world that is totally destructive. And the reason you do that is because you haven't shaped your conviction. And what's more interesting to us than God is self. And when self becomes our motivation, we'll seek things to our own advantage to the destruction of others. But we understand and shape yourself in conviction. You walk life in that way and you find a truth that's worth standing for. When that energy is used in the right direction, how beautiful it is for Jesus. How beneficial it is for a community and for you. It doesn't just have to happen in your family. I mean, that's who God's called you to be in this world, period, with the people you interact with. And so what that should bring us to do is, as individuals is to be vulnerable enough to ask questions. Don't, don't take this for granted. Man, faith is not something to be half-hearted about. I understand we talk about convictions today and saying the things that I'm saying. It could be like, you know, just hearing these things. But, but I'm telling you, this is so important that it, it's worth to be passionate about. It's worth to, to be vulnerable in. It's worth asking questions. Do not be afraid of the truth. No matter what it costs. Because God shaped you to identify yourself in that. Now, there is such a thing as a question that's passionately pursuing truth. And there's a question that just wants to make a mockery of things. And that's what you're seeing for these first three questions. And these, these individuals come to Jesus as religious leaders. By what authority? By what authority? And Jesus identifies that that's really not even their interest. Because they won't even take a stand over John. 
Their interest really is in self. Well, I don't want the other people to think bad about me, Jesus. So Jesus then gives an illustration in Mark chapter 12. He, He gives a parable about a vineyard. And the story starts like this. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. That's a nice little process, isn't it? This guy's like, I got some land. I want to make some money. I should use this. God gave it to me. So he builds a vineyard on here and he makes it nice, builds a wall, protects it, got a vat to, to, to make the wine. And, and then he, he rents it out to the, the vine growers. And the story goes on. I don't have time to go through it all. You can read it later. It's the first 12 verses of this chapter. But he goes on where the man goes on from the, that community as he gives it to these people and rents it out. And he sends servants to take from the vineyard. The reason he's, he's doing this is because that's according to Jewish law at the time. According to Jewish law, if you own land, but you're not going to cultivate the land, in order to show your possession of the land, you must send somebody back to that land to harvest some of the crops on the land. There's no amount that you have to take. it just be a small portion, but it's a demonstration that you own the land. Well, because the individuals on this land are interested in self, when the servants come to take the land, they kick the people out. They're thinking if we keep him from getting stuff from the land, we're going to own the land, and it becomes all about us. What happens in the fourth year is that the, this individual sends his son to the land and the servants on the land or the people, the vine growers, they say, let's kill the heir to this throne because if we kill him, there's no one to take over the land and it will become our land. And Jesus is identifying something in which he's doing. For the first three years of this illustration, throughout the period of time, God sent prophets. The people killed, mocked them, sent them away. But now finally God's sending his heir, his son, Jesus. Jesus gets the Leviticus chapter 19 is what he's he's playing uh, on in the story. But it says this about vineyards. This is according to Levitical law. In the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy. An offering of praise to the Lord. So when you grow a vineyard, according to the Jewish law, for the first four years, you can't eat anything on the vineyard. But they would still send someone to the land to take a little bit of the produce from the land to demonstrate that they owned the land, though they wouldn't reap from that produce or, or, or eat it. And in the fourth year that the land is grown, all that is on that land belongs to the Lord as a sacrifice of praise to him. It's a demonstration of Jesus who is ultimately coming as the, uh, as the sacrifice for our sins. And in the fifth year, you are to eat of its fruit. And so in the fifth year, you reap the harvest. And so when you read the story about the vineyard, you see for the first three years, servants come. And finally on the fourth year, it's the heir to the throne. And then Jesus asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do now that you've killed his son? This is an ultimate picture of Jesus. If the man who owns the property knows the fifth year is where he's going to have the harvest and make the money from which he has produced on this field, and you stop him from that, what do you think he's going to do? In a spiritual way, if Jesus comes, King of kings, Lord of lords, gives his life for you, and you tell him he's not good enough, even though he's the creator of all things, how do you think God will respond to that? It says he will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scriptures? 
The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him. They understood exactly what he was saying. And some people read that passage when Jesus is asked the question, by what authority, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, you tell me by what authority John baptized. And they're like, oh, Jesus never asked the question. He sidestepped. No, Jesus definitely answered the question. And Jesus is saying in this story, he is the heir to the throne. He is the king of kings, Lord of lords. And they see that in the story and they're ready to seize him. Question for you. Who is Jesus to you? Where is your conviction? What do you stand on? What other people say? What's important to you? And the things that are ultimately important for you, you, you make time for. Where does Jesus fit in? Jesus is pointing to their identity of where they want to find themselves um, idolizing self and staying safe. Jesus is encouraging them to, to deepen their conviction. And, and then he's asked this next question in, in, in verse 13. Second question, then they set some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. And is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? And let me just tell you what they did. This is called blowing smoke, right? <laughs> you might do this to your boss. Don't do that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not godly. Um, but, but they're just... They're just you know, uh, blowing up the situation, trying to pretend like they think Jesus is something that he's not. But it tells us in the first verse, their their intentions are to trap him. And here's how we know. The people asking this question are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Something interesting about these two groups, they hate each other. They hate each other. (laughs) The, The Pharisees hate Rome. They want to be a people to themselves. They want out from under Rome's authority. And the Herodians support Herod Antipas, who is a ruler for Rome. And yet, even though they hate each other, what's driving them together is a deeper disgust for Jesus. And they ask a question about money. And they don't care about the answer. The Pharisees do not want to pay money to the government. They want to be separate from the government. But they're like, hey, let's ask them a question about money. We're going to invite the Herodians because if Jesus tells them not to give money to, to, to Rome, then that's going to make the Herodians hate him. It's going to divide people's opinions over Jesus and his authority is going to diminish And so they come together and I ask this question. And then Jesus gives us a response. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at, which is a day's wages. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. What Jesus is saying here, as he's recognizing the, the position of Rome, the fact that they possess coins and Caesar's face is on that coin and they use that currency is showing that they're under the authority of Rome. Just like you today, if you possess currency of the United States of America and you use that currency as if you thought it was worth something, it indicates that you're under the authority of the United States of America as it relates to finances. If that were not true, you would figure out a different way to barter. 
I mean, you would go like Abraham style where they were like, how many camels you got? I got a hundred. Man, you are rich. You got a hundred camels. I'll pay you in sheep. You know, you would use a different kind of currency. But the truth is, we all know there's nothing backing the United States currency anymore. It's only as valuable as the government makes it valuable. But you, in recognizing the authority that the United States government puts on it, chooses to use it as an exercise of the authority of the government as based on its promises to the value that it's worth. And that's what Jesus is recognizing here. The image of Caesar is on that, and the authority of Caesar you're you're under, and if the government who produces the money that says the money carries a certain amount of value, tells you to give you some of that money, take me, or give me your money, the government has authority. But that's not ultimately where Jesus is driving. Ravi Zacharias has a beautiful teaching on this, but he he then says, he points to the the statement where Jesus says, render uh, to God the things that are God's. And what Jesus' ultimate next question is for people to consider is this. As you see the image of Caesar on, the value, on money, render it to Caesar. But the question then becomes, whose image is on you? Where do you belong? Jesus is hearkening all the way back to the beginning of Genesis when we were created. Because you were made in God's image. That's where you belong. That's why God's come. God's come for you to find your identity, worth, value, meaning in him. Allow that to shape your conviction. Allow that to be what you live for. Because that's what you're created for. You're made in the image of God. I, I remember as a young guy wrestling with this, like I live life for self. I did whatever I wanted, and it was destructive. Using my strength for my glory. And then one day, I remember I was in college, and I'm sitting there, and I'm asking the questions. I'm like, man, I keep doing things for my life, and temporarily I'm pleased. But in the end, I feel just lost. I, I, you know, going to school, you're taking just the, you know, the basic classes in college, trying to figure out where you want to go. And I'm like, I cannot figure out what I want to do with my life because I have no idea who I am and the ultimate reason for which I'm created. Is there even a purpose to life? And I just start asking the questions like, why am I here? And then you just think like, how did this life come together? Where did everything come from? Did something come from nothing? Like you, you think of this world, this is a multifaceted, multidimensional world, time, space, and matter, not just a physical thing existing, but the time from which it's to exist and the space for which it can exist in time, space, matter. And then spiritually, if you believe in a spiritual component, and this is a multifaceted, multidimensional uh, creation that exists in this world. Can something really come from nothing? And, and then on top of that, can, can something chaotically evolving really create order? I mean, I've stood behind a few two-year-olds in my life, and, and they even have the intellectual ability to think, but that's a lot of chaos entering into a room. And never have I walked in a room after a two-year-old and be like, man, look how that chaos created so much order. The chaos does not make order. And, and then on top of my life, I begin to recognize, well, not only does, does chaos not make order, but I attribute to my life a certain amount of value and worth and morality. Why do I attribute value to my life? Where does that ultimately come from? I mean, if I just evolved into existence, how, who am I to say I'm more valuable than a bird or, or I'm more important than a piece of dust if we all came from the same place? There's something divine about you. Or the fact that we even hold to morality. 
How, how, how could I ever expect people to hold to a universal truth in, in something if we all just randomly existed? How, why does one person think murder is wrong and someone in the other part of the country thinks the same thing? There's a governing body of authority. Like the, the, there's an intelligent designer. That's why chaos doesn't create order, but order creates order. There's an intelligent designer. That's why you know, I, I feel like I'm governed by morality is because there's, there's someone that created it with intentional purpose. That's why I feel like I have value is because I've been divine, divinely designed for a specific reason in this world. Now, ultimately, it'll lead you to Jesus if you follow truth. But, but that at least begins in our mind, there is a God. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Whose image is on you? Because that will determine your life, what you're living for. I mean, if it's Caesar, if that image is what's really on you, you live for that. But if it's something else, you're created for a much bigger purpose than just yourself. And so Jesus is identifying for these religious leaders the same thing. And, and, and then it, it goes on further, and Jesus is asking another question. They say this, in the resurrection, when, when well, let me, just, let me give you this backdrop for a read this because it's going to be confusing. Fair, uh, Sadducees come to Jesus and ask him a question. Uh, and it's important to recognize the Sadducees are asking the question, but this is how it goes. There's a lady who was married, and her husband died, and she was remarried, and her husband died, and uh, she was remarried, and her husband died, and she was remarried, and her husband died. Happens seven times. You got to love hypothetical questions, right? Like, suppose for a moment <laughs> it was you or them. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what else. Was but, but they're asking this hypothetical question of Jesus because hypothetical questions are wonderful. And so they ask, this lady's married seven times and her husband dies. And then they say this, verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And I tell you, the Sadducees do not care about this answer. And the reason we know they do not care about this answer is because the Sadducees don't even believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees followed the first five books of the Old Testament. It's funny, if you ask the Sadducees, do you believe in the law, you believe in the Ten Commandments, they'd be like, yes. Which is kind of weird for us to think about in our culture because if you walk the streets today and you ask people, how are you getting to heaven? They're like, I obey the Ten Commandments. You're like, can you even name three of them? Because I guarantee, out of the three you name, at least one of them you are not fulfilling. (laughs) You cannot covet. You cannot lust. You cannot steal. You cannot take God's name in vain. You're guilty of all of those. I'll see you later. There's not, you're not going to live Ten Commandments. Look at God and be like, I accomplished my ten. Let me in. That does not even exist in Scripture. In fact, the Sadducees read the Old Testament and they saw the Ten Commandments and they saw that there is no promise of any afterlife anywhere the Ten Commandments are written in all of the Bible. Where we get that as people, it is just beyond me. I have no idea where that comes from. There is no promise in the Bible of living the Ten Commandments and entering into eternity. Like if God asks you, why am I letting you in? Don't be like Ten Commandments. It condemns you. The law will always condemn you. The law is only there to condemn you. To say that the Ten Commandments are what you need to follow to get into heaven is just contrary to the Bible. I mean, God's going to look at you and be like, did you even read it? Did you even read it? (laughs) It's like, it doesn't make any sense. And so these Sadducees are asking this question uh, because they don't even believe in a resurrection. They believe in the Ten Commandments, but they don't even believe in a resurrection. And so they're just trying to corner Jesus. And and Jesus answers uh, the question for them, but then he also drives to their ultimate question they're missing. And I tell you, as people, we can do this sometimes. We make big deals out of the small deals, and we ignore the things that are most important. Like you we die on hills that maybe for a little while might be significant, but we act like that's the, the paramount thing to life. And then we don't ask the most important questions about life. 
Like, as people, sometimes I find, like, in academic circles, we're really good at answering what's. This is what I'm supposed to do. And we just drone on. And then we never ask the ultimate questions why. Philosophically, why, why do you feel like that's even significant to do? Oh, I don't know. We can't think critically. We're not challenged in that way in our academic circles. Like, here, here's, here's your default, science. <laughs> science. <laughs> it's like, think, just, let's just think critically for a minute. And Jesus is, is, Jesus is talking to these individuals, and they're, they're making an issue over a secondary thought, but Jesus drives it home to the primary thing. And, and here's, here's what it says. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So Jesus answers the question, but then he drives home to the main point. And so here's, here's the answer to the question. Um, you're not married in heaven. You're not married in heaven because marriage on earth is ultimately created to, to, to be a picture of your belonging to Jesus. Now, I want you to know, I think in eternity, we will recognize each other. Because one, we recognize the resurrected Jesus. And when Moses and Elijah came back at the transfiguration... Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah when they were at the transfiguration of Jesus. I think we're recognizable to each other. But ultimately, here's the answer Jesus tries to. Ultimately, you were created to belong to him. God created you for him. That's why scripture says his church is the bride and he is the groom. You ultimately belong to Jesus. Which is why Jesus ends the story talking about the resurrection. He says, that's why I'm not called the former God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or I, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because you were created to belong to me. And so he's saying to the Sadducees, Sadducees, you, you need to not only embrace the resurrection, but you need to see your place in me in that resurrection because I ultimately am the resurrection. Whose image is on you? That's where you shape yourself. Not according to Caesar, not according to self, but in the conviction of Jesus. And then there's this last question. I think this one, the individual comes and asks Jesus this question because he genuinely desires to know the answer. But one of the scribes came and heard them arguing. So he heard all these people coming around Jesus and recognizing that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered him. You know, in Israel, they had six, 613 commandments to live by. And I would look at that and be like, no, thank you. Like, 613, are you kidding me? Like, I, I'm lucky if I get three things in my day. 613. And so the popular question they're asking is like, okay, I'm not, not going to get all these right, Jesus. What, what is the, like, let's just do one. What is the best one? Like, if I see you one day face to face, I'm going to tell you I followed this one rule. What one rule can that be? And then Jesus says this. Jesus answered them foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus' answer isn't the typical religious answer. 
religious answer would be like, you follow this rule, you follow this rule, you follow this rule, and that will increase your performance into heaven. God will accept you, and you'll be uh, big and mighty and very important in heaven. So you do these according to the way I've written them. Don't ask me where they came from, but you just follow. But what Jesus is saying here is not a list of rules. Jesus goes to relationship. Because you're ultimately created for relationship. This morning when we share what we're sharing from God's word, we're not about knowledge. Now, we're going to share knowledge. But the end in itself is not knowledge. The end is worship. So you look at the way Jesus is answering these questions, your heart should be provoked to worship to see the beauty of Christ making himself known in these passages while people are coming to him to accuse him and and, and malign him and destroy him. He stands there and he answers these questions with such beauty. Not only does he answer the question, but he drives it back every time to what's most significant about our lives, which is our relationship to him. God created you to know him, not intellectually, but intimately, and to enjoy him for all of eternity. And in the knowledge of him and in knowing him personally, you reflect the beauty of his glory in this world because he has defined you as your image is made known in him. And ultimately, you end up loving what Jesus loves, which is people. Because that's who he's he's come for. The Bible tells us God desires to tabernacle, that Jesus tabernacled with us, and that God's temple now dwells in you, saying God's presence desires to be with you and in you and work through you, that his glory could be made known. And so if you wonder what we're about as a church, man, if you come in on Sunday morning, we're not like, here's here's a, a list of things that you need to conduct in your life in order to live law to make God happy with who you are. But rather, God wants you to find yourself in who he is because he has come to pay it all for you. That's why when you get to the book of Galatians, it says the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, because we interact in our spirit to God. That's all relational terms, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And then it says this, against such things, there is no what? Law. There is no law. When Jesus came, he established the new covenant, which means, guess what? Guess what's gone? Old covenant, right? And for some reason, at some point in our lives, in our religious way of thinking, we like to resurrect the old covenant. Why? There's two ways you kill a covenant. One, death. And two, fulfillment. Jesus did both for you. He died and fulfilled the demands of the old covenant because you could not do it. That's why it's foolish to say, God, I obeyed the Ten Commandments. Because Jesus knew that was the old covenant and you cannot do it. But here he is. I'm giving my life. As I give all that I am for you, if you want to enjoy life for the reason you're created in the spirit of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, give your life for me. Enjoy the reason for which you were created. And Jesus brings them to this crux. Oh, all right. <laughs> I got to end it fast here. But Jesus brings them to this crux and he says this. When, when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, the religious leaders saw that. He said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. Like being able to give you this answer on what you're seeking, relationship with me, it's not far from the kingdom. And then he says this. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions because Jesus demonstrated himself as as the lamb without spot or blemish. And then it goes on. And Jesus began to say, 
as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Like You religious leaders, you're saying the Messiah will be the son of David. But David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls that Messiah Lord. So in what sense is he his son? So he's saying, listen, you're thinking about David and having a lineage as in a physical son. But David thought deeper than just that phrase. David also called him Lord. Now, how if he's coming after David, would David then recognize him as ultimate Lord? Who do you say that I am? And then Jesus closes chapter 12 with a picture. At the end, he points to the religious leaders. And he just talks to the people there. He says, you know, look at the religious leaders. They wander in, in the temple and they show everybody how much money they donate. And they, and they pray out loud. So everyone just thinks they're so spiritual. Guys, can I tell you, there's nothing more powerful than my prayer, um, or nothing about my prayers that are more powerful than your prayers. The power that rests in prayer isn't found in us and ourselves, but rather the one that we're praying to. So that's, that's not something special about me. And you have that same access to the Lord. So Jesus points to these religious leaders that are all about self and promoting self and using the auspice of religion to hide that. And then he says this about this woman who's a, who's a widow. At the very end, he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributions to the treasury. So this widow comes and she puts in widow's might. She's two little widow's mites. And the, the history tells us that, um, that these widow's mites are worth about six minutes of work. So she takes all that she has and puts it in the treasury to contribute. And for they all put in out of their surplus, talking about the religious leaders, but, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned and all she had to live on. Jesus gave his life for you so that you could wrap yourself and your identity in him and in loving response, give your life back. And this picture is just a picture of this lady who's given it all. You think of these religious leaders and you would look at them and be like, man, they've got so much to give. They're so talented and so popular and so cool and everyone looks at them. And Jesus is like, it's the weak lady. It's the lady that people would say maybe doesn't have so much to offer. She's the one powerful in God's eyes. She's the one that's truly trusting and we look at the story this morning of Mark chapter 12, we see how it all fits together. But can I tell you, your Christian maturity isn't determined by what you know, but rather by how well you love. I want to be careful in saying by how well you love because I don't mean just like walking out here like a hippie and be like, dude, I love you, man. I love you. What's true for you is true for me and true. That's not what I mean, right? When you love the way you love, uh, that God calls you to love, you stand for something because you understand how important it is to the identity of who we are as people. It's like Jesus had sheep without a shepherd. And it's Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they were lost. You stand for that. Absolutely love people. But you care enough about people to root yourself in a conviction. And the mark of Christian maturity is not determined by what you know, but how well you love. 
rooted yourself in the conviction that is your identity in Jesus. Guys, don't be afraid of truth. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't, don't make paramount insignificant things of life when there are more important things to the identity of who we are. And the sooner you shape that, the more powerfully you can live in this world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.